Well, are you ready to get into the word today? Amen. I hope your heart is ready to receive what God has deposited in my spirit for you. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it with me to the book of Job. Go somewhere to the middle. If you found Psalms or Proverbs, turn left. The book of Job, the first chapter. We're going to read a fairly lengthy portion of scripture here in just a few moments. I'm wondering if anybody here has ever read the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Anybody ever read that book? Okay, yeah, we got, we got some parents, some educators in the room. Uh, this last week, uh, my family and I, we watched the movie adaptation of that, which is hilarious, by the way. Uh, but we watched that movie, and, and it's all about how you know, little Alexander just wished that his family could understand what it's like to actually have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And they do. They have the worst day you could ever imagine, unless you know about Job chapter 1. If you know about Job chapter 1, then you know what we're about to read is the worst day anyone has ever had. The absolute worst day anyone could ever have. It reminds me of Alexander times 100. So I want you to look with me at Job chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 13. It says, One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabians attacked and they made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Next verse. While he was still speaking, Another messenger came in and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Next verse. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and they swept down on your camels and they made off with them. They put your servants to the sword. And guess what? I'm the only one that escaped to tell you about it. Verse 18, while he was still speaking. How many of you know this is starting to get unbelievable? Yet another messenger came and said the worst news he could have imagined. Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. That's a bad day. Let's pray over the word this morning. Father, we just thank you that we've already in this service sent your presence in a powerful way. God, we just expect that you're going to meet us in the pages of your word. God, I just pray that for the next few moments, God, as I unpack this text, God, that you would just speak clearly to our hearts, speak to our minds, Lord, encourage us with your word in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. I, I went on a missions trip. Well, I've been on several missions trips, but my first one, I was about 20 years old and I was actually leading the trip. Uh, and we went to Guatemala. 
And we were there for 10 days. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a mission trip overseas, like third world country type thing. You know, you've experienced the culture shock. Some of you have. I I would encourage you, if you've never done it, you need to have the experience. But here's what I vividly remember of all the great experiences we had there. What I vividly remembered about the trip was the unexpected culture shock upon re-entry into the States. See, some of the uh, missions organization had prepared us for culture shock when we got there. They said, it's going to be crazy. If you've never been outside of the United States of America, you're coming into an impoverished area. You're going to see a lot of things you've never seen before. You're going to experience things you've never felt before, and it's going to be rough. And so we went, we were prayed up, we were ready, and we submerged ourselves into that uh, culture and into that mission opportunity, and God gave us the strength. But when the last day came and we had our celebration banquet, and then we packed up and we went to the airport, we were done. Like we kind of, you know, now it's just, let's just get home. What a great week. And I can remember on our way home, once we got stateside, everybody was hungry. And so we decided to stop at a fast food place. So everybody went inside and we all ordered uh, our value meals. And of course, we all supersized them, right? Because that's what we do. And, And then we got back on the bus and we were headed back home. And of course, we had been on, you know, Central American food for 10 days eating a lot of rice and and beans, and our appetites were all messed up, and our digestive systems, and so we start pounding down the fries and the the Whoppers, and and everybody starts kind of feeling a little bit sick, and, and nobody finished their meal. And then all of a sudden, we were just like hit with this guilt, because we had all these bags and bags of food that we were just gonna throw away. After just going and rubbing shoulders with people that had next to nothing, you know, people that were using a turned over cinder block for a toilet in a hole. And, and, and now we're, here we are throwing away, you know, all this food and, and just living in all of this luxury. And, and, and we felt guilty. We had the culture shock of realizing that, oh, my goodness, we're, 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 we're so wasteful. We're, we're, we're so spoiled. And it was hard to adjust because when you're there, it's amazing. I mean, for seven days or for 10 days or however long you go, I mean, you're experiencing like never before what it feels like to live on mission every day. I mean, 24-7, your only responsibility, you know, you get up in the morning and you say, hey, where are we going? Who are we going to minister to today? Are we going to the orphanage? Are we going to go out and do a street meeting? Are we going to have a church service? Are we going to go and build something for somebody? And 24-7, you are on mission every day, and it feels amazing. It feels awesome. But then you come back, and, and you can't live every day like that. I mean, you have to get up, and you got to go to work. You got to pay your bills. Doesn't feel so missional paying the bills. You got to go grocery shopping. You know, you got to change diapers or clean the house or, you know, there's stuff that you go, this just doesn't feel as missional. And, and at some point, you know, you got to kind of get your equilibrium balanced again spiritually and you got to answer the question, okay, what does it look like for me now? What does it look like to live on mission here? What does it look like for me to live on mission in in this moment, in the everyday, in the normal stuff? And and so in this series, for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to live on mission. And we began by talking about what it looks like to live on mission in the moments. The, The Great Commission tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But really what it says is as you're going, 
Preach the gospel. As you're going, make disciples. And so missions is not a, a field that we go to. It's not a location. We are the walking coordinates, that missions is, is every moment. It's as we're going, it's living out our faith. Last week, we, we got really practical, and we talked about what it looks like to be on mission in our media. Those, those little conveniences that can all of a sudden uh, just soak up all of our lives and our time and our attention, and, and what does it look like to live missionally and to create space and margin for God to work in this culture that we live, but I think many of you could testify today and and say amen to this thought. The hardest days to live on mission are the days that life hits us the hardest. How many of you would say amen to that? The hardest days to live on mission are the days when life absolutely hits us the hardest. And by the way, life will hit you hard. You don't even have to be Christian to say amen to that. Come on. I mean, life will mess you up. It gets messy sometimes. It gets difficult. So today, I want to talk about how to live on mission in the mess. When things don't go right, when things don't go according to plan. See, living on mission is not something that you decide to do once you get all your problems solved. Because how many of you know if that was the plan, none of us would ever do anything uh, for the Lord? We would live all of our days spending all of our time trying to solve all of our unending problems. So living on mission is not something that you say, God, once I get this figured out, then I'm going to do this for you. When life gets messy, you have a choice. You can do one of two things. It's very simple. You can either draw close to God or you can move farther away from him. But if we believe that God is the Lord of all, if we really believe that he is in control of our coming and our going, when we rise and when we lie down, then we can't just give him the good days. Amen? That means we got to figure out, okay, then God, what does it look like for me to live on mission even in the mess? St. Augustine put it this way. He said, God only had one son on this earth without sin, but none without suffering. To even Jesus had hard days. Even Jesus had troubling circumstances. And, and if even Jesus experienced all of that, then, then we can know two things. Number one, we can know that not all your trouble, not all pain, not all sickness, not all strife is a result of your sin. That can't be true because Jesus dealt with that stuff and he never sinned. He was perfect. So not everything that you go through is a result of your own sin. Now, sometimes it is, and you're going to have to let the Holy Spirit deal with you and bring correction in those things. But not everything that goes wrong in your life can be tied to sin in your life because Jesus faced trouble. The other thing that we can know is if Jesus even experienced, then none of us are exempt. It's not if, it's when. Amen? We're going to deal with difficult days. So, so I want to just lean in with our hearts today to try to answer this question. How do I live on mission in the mess? We're going to go back and we're going to look at Job's story a little bit. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give you just a couple points here. Number one is this. you got to pursue God's presence. Now, we just read a few moments ago the worst day ever. And I want you to look at the very next verse, right after where we stopped. After Job just discovered that his his children and all of his possessions have been destroyed. 
Verse 20 says this, at this, Job got up, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, wallowing in self-pity. Is that right? At this, Job got up, tore his robes, shaved his head, and fell to the ground, banging his fists in anger. Are we getting close? At this, the worst day that Job could ever have imagined, under the worst circumstances, the worst nightmare for any parent, at this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. Those are signs of outward sorrow. That's grief in this culture. That's an outward display of of a heart that is broken. But in this posture, He fell to the ground in worship. Can I tell you today that that is the highest praise you'll ever offer? That is the sweetest sacrifice of worship that you'll ever give when your worship is inspired 100% by who God is and not at all because of what he's done. There is no outward compulsion for Job to worship. There's something beyond what he sees that drives him to his knees. And Job worships God. This is not worship that's inspired by blessing. This is worship in spite of the lack of blessing. That's a whole different category for praise. That's when you let your pain become a platform for your worship. You let your sorrow elevate the glory of God. That's where Job's at in this moment. He could have done a thousand things and we wouldn't have blamed him for it. We wouldn't have faulted him. But Job said, our Job, rather, worshiped. Look at the next verse. Here's what he said. Verse 21, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job could have done a lot of things, but he chose to lift his hands. He chose in this moment, in this mess, to lift his hands. And in doing that, here's what he's saying. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Now, that's a big word, sovereignty. But what he's acknowledging is that God is in control. He's just saying, God, I recognize in this moment that that you are in control of this. It's the exact opposite of what most of us would want to do, right? I mean, come on, in our flesh, let's not, let's not read the scripture with rose-colored glasses here today. Okay, let's take Job off the stained glass and let's bring him to our lives for a moment. And let's just acknowledge that we would do the exact opposite of what he did in that moment. Instead of lifting our hands up to God, we would want to clench our fists. Because here's what happens when, when we start to feel like something's out of control, we want to control everything else. Right? I mean, if this doesn't make sense, then I'm going to try to control everything else, every other area of my life. And so instead of lifting our hands in worship, we start grabbing. We start grabbing a hold of things. We start trying to hold on a little tighter. We start trying to make sense of the situation. And what happens when we lift our hands in worship is at the same time, we loosen our grip on the things that we couldn't control to begin with. Come on, how many of you know it's a self-deception to think that we control it? 
But what do we do? Instead of worshiping, we start trying to manipulate circumstances. We start trying to grab a hold and cling a little tighter. But if we would take Job's posture and instead of holding on, we would release and let go and lift our hands in worship, we would find that we are letting go of stuff that we never had control of to begin with. You know the other thing that we do? If we're not clenching our fists, we're pointing our fingers. Have you noticed that when things get messy, if we can't make sense of it, let's at least know whose fault it is right? I mean, we start pointing those fingers. We don't lift them up in praise. We, we blame people. Or we blame circumstances. Or we blame our past. Or we, we blame God. But we start pointing our fingers so that we can figure out who's at fault here. When things don't go well, can I tell you what blaming does? Blaming blinds you. Blaming blinds you to the blessing that God wants to give you. To where all we can see is who's at fault and, and what's at fault. In, in Genesis, I, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 16, we get the story of a woman named Hagar. Now, Hagar was the servant for Abraham's wife, Sarah. And God had given Abraham the promise that Sarah was going to have a child, and, 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 and she was uh, barren. He was infertile, and, and it wasn't working, and, and so... They're trying to come up with their own plan. And so Sarah gives her maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham to have the child for her. And so they do this process. And then the Bible says in, in, in Genesis 16 that Hagar began to despise Sarah. As the child's growing in her own womb, she begins to despise Sarah. And, and she has a bad attitude. And and, and everything is shifted. And then the Bible says that Sarah began to mistreat her to the point that finally Hagar decides, I'm out of here. I'm running away. And she actually leaves. She goes out into the desert, and, and she's probably going to die out there because she doesn't have the supplies that she needs. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to her, and he speaks a word to her. And the word to Hagar is, humble yourself. Just just. Humble yourself. You're so busy pointing the blame at, at whose fault this is and, 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 who, and who's done something wrong to you and who's hurt you and who's offended you. Listen, Hagar, that child in your womb is going to be many nations. I, I, I'm going to bless you. You can be fruitful or you can be frustrated, but you can't be both. So the message to Hagar is, make up your mind. What do you want to be? Do you want to be a blamer or do you want to be blessed? Because you can't be both. And so he sends her back. And she goes back to the house of Abraham and Sarah. And it's from that place. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, that Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Now, how many of you know God saw her all along? But the difference is, she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that's what can happen for us when we choose to, to lift our hands in worship and not point our fingers in blame. All of a sudden, she wasn't blinded anymore to the goodness of God. She wasn't just living in frustration anymore. All of a sudden, she could see God's plan for fruitfulness in her life. Can I just say to us today that you're going to miss the mission if you waste your messy days clenching your fist 
or pointing your fingers. I feel like I need to say that again. You're going to miss the mission, the purpose, the plan, the glory of God expressed through your life if you spend the messy days clenching your fist, holding on to what you can't control anyway, or pointing your fingers and blaming everybody else instead of leaning in to know the one who sees you. That's what Hagar said. I know I have now seen the one who sees me. See, the reality is oftentimes if we'll just commit to pursuing God's presence, we'll discover that he speaks louder to us in our pain than he ever would in our pleasure. That's what C.S. Lewis said so eloquently when he said, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. In other words, God uses difficult days. He uses the mess to arrest our attention. Lewis goes on to say, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. David had the same determination in Psalm chapter 13. I love Psalm 13 because it's only six verses long. And in the first two verses, David asked the question four times, how long? You ever been there? You ever been there where your whole prayer life just felt like a bunch of questions? Let me just read the first couple of verses. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Here's where David's at. He's just being honest with God. This does not make sense to him. This is a mess. And then look at the next verse, verse three. He says, look on me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. And my enemies will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. I mean, he's just going down. down. This doesn't sound like a psalm, does it? You're like, I thought psalms were more inspirational. This is just going bad. There's only two verses left to get it right. But look at what he says at verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. This is a moment where David could have started clenching his fist. This is a moment where David could have started pointing his fingers. But instead, he plants his foot and he pivots upward and he says, God, Yet, I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I could grumble. I could complain. I could blame. I could be frustrated. But look at the last verse. Verse 6, he said, I will. Here's what I will do. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Some of you, it was such a statement of faith for you today just to stand up and to sing. Knowing what you're going through, knowing what you've been through, knowing what the diagnosis is, or knowing where the relationship's at, or knowing what's going on, you just made up your mind like David to said, you know what I'm going to do on Sunday morning? I will sing. I I'm going to sing. I don't feel like it. I got four questions here that God has not answered in my life, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lift my voice, and I'm going to pursue God's presence. That's what he calls us to do. Let me, let me just ask you to consider this. 
It, it, it might seem a little dark to do it, but I think it's healthy. How far is too far? In, in other words, to what length would you not go to give God praise? David had all kinds of questions, but he made up his mind. You know what? God is worthy. Job went through an impossible circumstance, but he made up his mind in that moment. I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship my God. So, so what about you? Is there a point in your life where you would say, you know what, if, if God allowed that to happen, I'd walk away. I'd walk away. I mean, you know, I, I've had my troubles, but for the most part, God's been good. But if this happened in my life, I'd, I'd, I'd tap out. I'd be done. I'd never talk to God again. I'd never pray. I'd never worship again. I think it's actually a healthy question to ask. Job did. Job actually mulled over the, the, the potential of worst-case scenario worship. Do I show up for the worship in the worst-case scenario? And here's the conclusion that he came to in chapter 13 and verse 15. Here's what he said. Though he slay me, still I will serve him. I mean, come on. That's as bad as it gets. I mean, if God were to strike me dead, I'm still going to put my hope in him. I'm still going to worship him. I'm still going to trust him. And can I just tell you today, you can live on mission, even in the middle of the messiest of circumstances, if you'll begin with this determination to say, I'm going to pursue God's presence. I'm going to pursue his presence. That's what Enoch did. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God faithfully. And then he was no more because God took him away. He just made up his mind. I'm going to pursue God's presence. And he just kept pursuing God's presence. And he kept pursuing God's presence. And he walked with God. And he lived a long time. For over 100 years, he just walked with God until finally they turned around and God said, you know what, Enoch, you're closer to my house than yours. Let's just keep going. That's good. That's what Abraham did. He walked with God. He pursued God's presence so much so that God called him to, to go to a land that he didn't know about to build a nation that hadn't existed yet with a wife who couldn't have children. And he said, you know what? God said, go. I'm just going to go with God on this one. That's what Moses did. The Bible says God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's what Joseph did all throughout his story, all throughout his trials. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who had some messes in his life. And yet all throughout Joseph's story, Genesis 37 through Chapter 50, we see these words over and over again. The Lord was with Joseph, just pursuing God's presence, just going after the heart of God. You want to talk about somebody who had a mess? What about King David? I mean, King David committed adultery, and then he tried to cover it up by murdering the man who was married to the woman who was now carrying his child. That's a mess. But you know what? It's not his testimony. That's not what we think about when we talk about David, because in the book of Acts, it says God gave this testimony about David. He was a man after God's heart. Because he chose in Psalm 51, in the middle of the mess, to lift his hands to worship in God, to confess his sins, to repent and say, God, I don't want you to take your spirit from me. God, I don't want this to be the story of my life. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So David lived his life and died on mission, not because of a sinless perfection, but because of a heart of surrender. 
Jesus' invitation. Two words, follow me. I'm talking about pursuing God's presence. Follow me. That was it. Follow me. It's an invitation to just go after the heart of God. And you know what? The disciples, they did that for a long time before they even made a statement of faith. Have you thought about that before? Way before the disciples ever said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They received the invitation to just pursue God's presence in the form of Jesus. So you might be here today and you don't even have a relationship with God. You know what? Just, just pursue God's presence. I mean, you, you've done a great job by just being in God's house. Don't, don't, don't feel like you're, you're being hypocritical by being here and not being a believer. Listen, just pursue God's presence. He'll reveal himself to you. He'll show up. And God can take the worst mess and he can use it for his glory. Let me give you the second thing. Pursue God's presence, but secondly, trust God's plan. I want you to look with me again at Job's story. Look at verse 22. It says, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, can I just state what we've already discovered here together this morning? Job has no clue why he's experiencing what he's going through. It's not like he had a dream the night before or that God gave him a prophetic word and said, listen, some bad stuff's going to happen, but I'm going to use it for my glory. None of that. Job is absolutely rocked by this day. But he doesn't make the mistake of thinking that God was rocked by this day. You might not know why, but don't make the mistake of thinking that God doesn't know why. And so Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. See, in Job's mind, there's nothing about this situation that's right. But in his heart, there's nothing about God that's wrong. That's what it means to trust God's plan. It doesn't mean to figure it out. It just means to know that when nothing looks right, there's nothing wrong with God. And God is in control. So I'm just going to trust the goodness of God. See, we have the privilege that Job didn't have. We can actually know exactly why all this happened. We skipped it earlier, but let's back up a little bit to verse 6. See, we get to know exactly why Job is going through what he's going through. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Here's God talking about how awesome Job is. I wonder what God is saying about us this morning. Isn't it cool to think that God's talking about us? But look at what happens next. Verse 9 says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now... 
Stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So this is the conversation that's happening in heaven the day before. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. If you've never read that before, that's mind-blowing. And I just remind us today that when life doesn't make sense, know that your perspective and my perspective is limited. It's limited. That's why over 25 times in this book, Job asked the why question. He continually asked God, Look, give me an opportunity here to defend my case before God. Like, this doesn't make sense. If I've done something wrong, tell me what I did. And he wants answers. And Job is, is going through the, the fiery furnace of suffering. He couldn't make sense out of his circumstances. But Paul said this about our perspective in God's. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he said, For now, and this includes all of us, for now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then... We shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. Can I just say today that God's plans are written from God's perspective? So if you're going through something and it doesn't make sense from where you are, it's because you can't see the plan of God from where you are. God told Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55, he said, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways. So if it doesn't make sense to you from where you sit, it's because you don't have God's perspective on the whole thing. Here's one of the encouraging truths we get, though, out of, out of Job's trouble. As you read these verses, it's simply this, that every test of our faith is father filtered. It, it might seem impossible. It might seem like you can't endure it. It might seem like it's too much to bear. But I want you to notice what happened as Satan presents his case and says, well, Job only blesses you because you've blessed him. If, if he didn't have all that material stuff, if he didn't have a hedge of protection around his family, then he wouldn't love you. He wouldn't worship you. And so God says, okay, you can test Job, but God gives him the parameters. In other words, God draws the line and Satan can't cross it. So whatever the test is you're facing, you can take consolation today in knowing that whatever I'm going through has been father filtered. That's why even when Jesus warned Peter in the gospel of Luke, he said, Peter, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. Just before he gave him that, that, that bombshell of, of a revelation, here's what he said to him. Jesus said in Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. See, Satan may come against you, but how many of you know he's got to get permission first? If you're a child of God, he's got to get permission first. He can't just come in and, and, and hijack your life. He can't come in and just bring sickness and disease. God knows. God knows what you're going through, and he knows he has a plan for his glory. That's why when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know that I have the authority 
to give you life or to take it from you, Jesus said, you don't have any authority except the authority that's been given to you by the Father. Now, he wasn't denying that Pilate could take his life and would. But what he was saying is is what Job didn't know. That everything that I'm going to go through has been father filtered. God is in control. And you can can trust God's plan. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying you can trust God's plan because you can know that he will never, ever relinquish control. Never. He will never relinquish control. Look look at the first couple verses in chapter 2 of Job's story. On another day, it says, the angel came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before God. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He says the exact same thing in this verse that he said in chapter one. There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But then he says more this time. He adds, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Listen, for God to say something so awesome about Job in chapter one, that's incredible. But for God to say it in this moment, this is amazing. I'm going to tell you why it's amazing. Because when he said it in chapter one, Job was blessed. I mean, everybody would call him blessed regardless of what you think about God. The guy had money. The guy had health. The guy had influence. He had everything going for him. By any measure, we would say, that guy's blessed. But it's so amazing that we see God say the same things and even more about Job in chapter 2. Because our tendency is to want to try to impose the blessing of God on our pleasure. Don't interpret your pleasure as God's pleasure. And don't interpret your pain as God's disappointment. See, we think if I'm happy, then God's happy with me. If I'm not happy, then God must be mad at me. If I'm suffering, then God must be angry. And here Job is, he's broken, he's hurting, he's lost everything of value to him. And God says, have you considered this guy? I am more proud of this man than I've ever been in all of his life. On the worst day of Job's life, God could not have been more proud. It reminds me of the story in 1 Samuel. Hannah was praying to God for a son. She was broken. She couldn't have a child. And then God promised to give her a child. She said, God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. And so sure enough, Hannah conceives and she gives birth to a son, Samuel. And once he is weaned, She takes him back to the temple of the Lord. She gives him to the prophet Eli, and she says, this was my commitment to God, that if he would give me a son, I would give him back to him all the days of his life. And so Hannah now has a perspective on what God wanted to do in her life. She recognizes that her son has a plan and a purpose. And so the Bible says in the beginning of chapter 2 that Hannah begins to pray this prayer. And she says this little phrase that some of you just need to grab a hold of today. In the middle of her prayer, she says these words in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 3. She said, for the Lord is a God who knows. 
I, when, I, when I read that, I just had to, I had to underline it in my Bible. I had to highlight it. The Lord is a God who knows. And he wants some of you to be reminded of that truth today. The Lord is a God who knows. If you're going through a situation that doesn't make any sense, the Lord is a God who knows. And, and you may not get the answer this side of heaven. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. And sometimes it's going to stay that way. You may go to your grave with your how long questions. You may go to the grave with your why questions, but trust God's plan. Trust that there's something going on in the heavenlies that's far greater than what you can see or understand. You got to just commit in your heart, even on the, on the messy days, I'm going to pursue God's presence. Even on the messy days, I'm going to trust God's plan. And, and, and finally, the third thing is this. Even on the messy days, I'm going to persevere in the faith. Look with me in the next verses here in Job chapter 2, verse 4. After God's bragging about Job, so proud, Satan responds in verse 4, skin for skin. A man will give all that he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Verse 8 says, then Job took a piece of broken pottery and he scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. I mean, it's gone from bad to worse because not only has he lost all of his possessions and his children have died, now Job's physical body is under attack. And maybe you've noticed, but there is a close relationship between our physical body and our emotions, our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. In fact, one person said it like this, our body and our soul live so close together that they tend to catch each other's diseases. If we're down emotionally, it affects us physically. We feel tired. We feel exhausted. We don't have the energy to do what we need to do. If we're sick physically, it affects us emotionally. So it's not uncommon for your faith to feel weak when your body is fatigued. That's why they teach people in recovery groups the acronym HALT. Because HALT, it's, it's for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And, and when you're one of those four things, you're more susceptible to relapse. Two of those things, hungry and tired, are physical things. The other, angry and lonely, are emotional things. And they can play off of each other. And it's not just for people with chemical dependencies. You might just struggle with a, a sexual addiction. It might be just a lack of low self, a low self-esteem or, or something emotionally. But when you're in one of these four categories, there's a tendency to, to relapse back to old patterns, to old ways of thinking. And, and so these are times when we have to wake up to what's happening around us and within us and, and halt. So here's Job. He's in that. He's facing all of those things physically now as well as emotionally. And then you want to pour salt in the wound 
Look at verse 9. His wife, this is his cheerleader. This is supposed to be his advocate. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, that's harsh. Come on. That's rough. Just curse God and die. But look at his reply. Verse 10. You're talking like a foolish woman. Guys, don't quote that verse this week. Let me just say, there are scriptures to memorize. That's probably not the one. But listen to his explanation. He says to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? That's a great question. I mean, come on, are we only going to, are we going to only honor God when he gives us what we want? Are we going to just accept the good from God or are we going to worship him even in the trouble? Then Job's friends show up and we don't have time to talk about these guys, but in verse 11, Job's friends come in and they try to comfort him. Verse 13 says they sat down on the ground with him for seven days, day and night, and they said nothing. And by the way, that was the best thing these guys did. They didn't try to give him advice. They just sat with him. They grieved. And that's the best thing for us to do sometimes when we're walking with somebody that's just going through a mess. Just be there. Because Job is 42 chapters long, and most of the chapters after this are these three guys trying to tell Job all the things that he's done wrong to deserve what he's going through. They're trying to make sense of it, and none of them have a clue. And and it gets so bad that you get to the last chapter of the book of Job, and, and God said, I'm so angry at these three. I need you guys to bring an offering to Job so that he can make a sacrifice and ask me to forgive you so I don't kill you. That's how the story ends. Job is now praying for God to spare his stupid friends because they tried to explain what you're going through and why you're going through it and what God thinks about it. And and, and God hasn't called them to play psychologist. They were at their best when they just sat there with him and they prayed for him and they grieved with him. Job lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his finances. He lost his fitness. And then he lost his friends. And yet with all of it, he didn't lose his faith. That's what's so powerful about this story. He never lost his faith. In Job chapter 19, he's in the middle of it. I mean, there's no sign of deliverance. He's in the midst of it. And he makes this incredible statement in verse 23. Job 19, he says, oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. And in Job, in the middle of your mess, if your words were going to be recorded forever, and thank God they are, if they were etched in stone, what would you want them to say, Job? What about you? How can you live on mission in your mess? If we could just record your words in the middle of the situation, what would it look like? Here it is. Verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. Can't see him. He hasn't shown up yet. But I know that he lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after that, My skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh 
I will see God. I myself, with my own eyes, not another, how my heart yearns within me. When I think about what it looks like for a person to just be on mission in the mess, to pursue God's presence, to trust God's plan, to persevere in the faith. I can't think of a better living example than the one that's sitting right here on this front row. I think about Brittany Merrill. Because for the last 12 months, we've, we've watched her and Pastor Chris walk through a mess. And so this last week, Brittany took some time to put her story into words. And I just want you to watch it. March 1st, 2018 is a day that I will never forget. I went into the breast care center. Uh, I was supposed to have just a quick ultrasound, um, not a big deal at all. Uh, It was supposed to be a half an hour appointment. And what ended up being a half an hour turned into four and a half hours. And I remember thinking something wasn't right. I remember the radiologist coming in and she's staring at the computer and staring at the images and uh, I just felt scared. And I saw her go over to the sink, she washed her hands and I'm sitting there and she turns around and she says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I think you have cancer. And I just remember my first thought was, what about my kids? You know, at that time, They were uh, five and two years old. I also thought, what about my husband, Chris? Uh, I'm not ready to leave this earth, you know, and leave them with no mom or with no wife. After finding out that I had cancer, I was angry. I didn't think it was fair. Why would God do this? Why why me, out of all people? I don't want to go through this. I don't, I don't want to be brave. I don't want to, you know, uh, smile in all of this because it's not good news. I knew that this was something I was going to overcome, but I knew that there was two paths that I could choose. Uh, one was going down the path of cancer, consuming my life, um, defining who I was, or I could choose the other path and um, know that God is in control of all this and He's going to give me a supernatural joy. I can't change my circumstance in all of it, but I can change the perspective of it and fly. And to be honest, I feel like I have gone that path and I'm rocking it. And I remember there were certain points where I'd be washing the dishes or, you know, in the shower or, um, you know, cleaning up or doing laundry. And, you know, I just would start bawling and tears would just come down and I could feel, um, I could feel God's presence in all of this. And he laid on my heart that this is going to be okay, that his hand is in all of this, and I just need to trust in him. I am still fighting. I have chemo until April, uh, and then another big surgery planned after that. 
Um, and I don't know what my outcome is. I don't know if I'm cancer free. Um, I hope I am and I pray that I am. But I do know that um, whatever the outcome is, that God's in control. I definitely feel that this experience has brought me closer to God in all this. Uh, it's giving me that supernatural joy that is only from God. And um, I am definitely not the same person. My family has changed as well. It's awesome. Chris and I have been at Wrightsville Assembly of God for three years. Um, and I can honestly say that every single one of you have been family to me. This is the first time in my life that I literally feel lifted by people's prayers. So I just want to thank Wrightsville and thank, thank each one of you for being there by my side and praying for me and crying with me and hugging me and getting me through some of that. It's been everything to me. There's uh, one thing that I've learned throughout this journey that uh, God is faithful. Whatever mountain that you have in front of you that just feels like it's crumbling or whatever problem that you're going through that feels hopeless, God is there to be with you and He is for you and He will never let you go. Come on, come on. Here's what I know. Brittany's not the only one here today that is in a mess. So I'm just going to put some worship on for a moment. Here's how we're going to end this service. If, if you're here today and you say, man, I, I, I don't want to waste this day. The only day that you can give to God is the day you have. And what I've loved about walking through this journey, as hard as it's been with, with Chris and Brittany, is that they, they haven't wasted the last year. They haven't said, when God fixes this, we'll move forward. No. Yesterday's history. Tomorrow's a mystery. We only have the present. So if you're here today and you say, my, my life, I got a mess going on, but I want to be on mission. I don't want to waste these moments. I want God to be glorified in it. And I choose today, instead of living my life with clenched fists, trying to hold on to things I can't control, or pointing fingers and blaming people and missing the blessing, I'm going to take the posture that she took, and I'm going to lift hands and surrender, and I'm going to say, God, I fall to the ground in worship today. If that's you, I want to ask you right now to stand and come to this altar. I want you to stand right where I come to this altar. We want to pray together for you. And there are men and women that are going to come and pray with you because nobody is called to go through it alone. Amen, church? Amen. Can we all stand together as people are coming? If you want to come and pray for someone, just come. You're welcome. Just come and stand behind them. Put a hand on somebody's shoulder. But if you're here today and you say, I'm in the middle of a mess, but I'm not going to waste it because God is sovereign. I trust him. I trust that he's in control. 
I trust that even when nothing in my situation looks right, nothing in my heart says that God is wrong. And so I surrender. Come on, there's more people. You need to come. You need to come. I I know that God is speaking to your heart today. Step out from where you are. Let God move in this moment right now. Just let God move in your life. Church, if you're not coming to the altar, would you just stretch a hand this way? We're going to agree in prayer right now for those that are here. I need some more more people to come and pray for some folks. Come and help these guys out. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, come and put a hand on somebody's shoulder. I don't want anyone standing here by themselves in this moment. Church, can we just go to God right now in prayer? Lord, we just thank you that you are the sovereign God of grace. As we begin this service today, we declare here at the conclusion, you are the everlasting God. And strength does come when we wait upon you. So God, right now, Lord, we come into your presence. We tarry at your altar. God, we're waiting for you, Lord. We need your touch. We need your grace. Lord, we need your healing. We need your strength. We need your power. God, we need you to display your goodness in the lives of your people. But God, we refuse to wait for clarity. We refuse to wait for answers to all of our how long questions. God, we plant a foot in the ground today of praise. And God, we choose today to worship you, to lift up our hands and surrender. To declare like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. But the name of the Lord is worthy of praise. You deserve the glory, God. Not only in the good things you give us, but even in the trouble. So God, we just release to you right now the the mess, the difficulty, the stuff that we never saw coming. God, use it today. Put our lives on mission. Be glorified through it. God, I pray that you would be bragging about these men and women in the altar today in the heavenly realms. Right now, God, that you would speak highly of them. God, that you would speak of their integrity and their faithfulness, even in the midst of adversity. God, be honored by their perseverance, by their commitment to trust you in the uncertainty. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Lord, we just receive your grace again. Thank you that your mercies are new every day. Right now, God, you're providing for us. You're giving us the mercy that we need to sustain us today. God, we give you thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, thank you for it, Lord. As these continue to just minister at the altar, I just want to thank you for being here today, for lifting up the church in prayer. Can we just let God know that we're grateful for his presence in this place today? Come on, let's just worship him.